In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you go as a priest to visit children in school, you end up getting all sorts of uh, interesting questions. There are certain questions we come to expect, like, why are we not married? Or, why do we have to wear a collar? Now, one question that remarkably comes up a good bit involves who is and isn't in heaven. And I usually like to respond by speaking about the mercy of God and how all of us are offered his mercy. We're offered it, but we have to choose to accept it. And sometimes, if you have a few bit more astute students in the class, you'll get a question that goes along like this. What if, on his deathbed, Hitler regretted everything and was really sorry? Would he be in heaven? I've been asked that more than once by students. And it's obviously a difficult question to respond to since we don't fully know the mind of God. And then as a priest, you know, I think in a theological way, so I start trying to delve into the question of whether or not Hitler had perfect or imperfect contrition. Um, But the answer really boils down to one point, and that is there is always hope. There is always an opportunity for conversion and for forgiveness, at least for as long as we are on this earth. The world has a strange view of Catholicism as a religion of judgment and punishment. But the reality couldn't be farther from the truth. Catholicism holds as a core principle that every person, every person is never too far gone that they cannot be redeemed and forgiven. Where we differ from most Christians is that we fundamentally believe that in order to receive God's forgiveness, we have to actually desire it. Now, Jesus poses this interesting parable to us in the gospel, and it's worth considering. We have two sons, and to both sons, the father makes a request. One son says he will do it, but he wasn't being honest. He went off to do his own thing, and he ignored the father's request. The second son initially said that he wouldn't do it, But afterwards, he regretted his decision and did the Father's will instead. And so the Lord asked us, which of these two actually did the Father's will? The one who said he would, or the one who actually did? You see, the point isn't so much that we say we're Christian, or that we say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The point is that we actually are Christian that we actually live the Christian life. Now, Protestants during the Reformation were so heavily influenced by Muslim thought that was going through Western Europe at the time. And Muslims believe that the only thing necessary to make you into a Muslim is that you profess verbally, that you profess the, the verbal creed of the Muslim faith. And Protestants adopted this notion during the Middle Ages to say that if you can verbally declare that Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior, then you're saved. But if you really sit down and think about it, that line of reasoning doesn't work. It isn't enough to just say you're Christian, or to just say you're going to follow the commandments, or even to say that you want to follow the commandments and the gospel. 
You have to actually do it. And the problem is, we don't. The parable we have today is a great image for our condition. Now, a lot of us know what the faith teaches, or we feel our conscience prick at us when we should act, and our initial reaction is, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the right thing. And the intention is really there in an honest way. Not many people generally start off wanting to do the wrong thing. But so many of us as well, after that initial desire in our heart to do the right, then we go off and we get distracted by something else in the world, by our peers, by some movement in the culture, by habitual attachment to something. And that distraction pushes us into the wrong thing. Or at least it pushes us into omitting to do the right thing, which, by the way, is just as bad as doing the wrong thing. So the first point of the parable is that it isn't really our intentions that matter in the end. There's a theological principle here which scholars would call the fundamental option. You know, many non-Catholics argue that as long as you have some fundamental commitment to desire the good, then when we don't do good, it's okay because in the end it's the thought that counts. Well, that isn't really the case. Perhaps we can be forgiven when we do the wrong thing out of ignorance. But when we plainly know that something is wrong, and we do it anyway, we can't very well say that our conscience is fundamentally aligned towards the good, or else we just wouldn't do evil. So no, our intentions don't make our actions okay. But the other side of the parable is that even when our intentions start out wrong, or even when we have some initial and imperfect hesitancy to do the right thing, if in the end we actually choose to do the good, that in the end, that's all that matters. It makes up for our initial hesitancy or our struggles. And we can apply this to an individual act, but we can also apply it generally over the course of one's life. Say, for instance, someone for years was tracked in an addiction to some vice, or for years someone avoided doing the right thing out of fear of what other people would think. What matters to the Lord, in the end, is where our conscience lies when we face judgment. That is, what matters is where we are when we come to our end. A Benedictine monk once told me in confession that it doesn't matter if in a day's time we fall 75 times, if each time we get up and try again. The only real failure is when we determine to stay on the ground and give up, because then we're lost. If each of those 75 times we stand up, It's a little victory over sin. Even if we already made the mistake, that sin, that failure of ours, didn't keep us on the ground, which is where the enemy wanted us. The important thing, then, is to always keep trying, to never give up. St. Thomas Aquinas gives us the image of a brick wall. With each decision to do good, we place another brick on that wall, reinforcing the whole structure. And if we continually do this, then the good thing we choose becomes a habit, and then the wall will become stronger until eventually it becomes impenetrable. However, the same will be true of our vices. Each time we sin and we refuse to address that sin, we place a brick on the wall of sin which imprisons our heart. And if we continually leave even those little acts unchecked, that wall will become more and more reinforced, and therefore our sinful inclinations will become more and more difficult to withstand. 
Now, grace, most especially the sacramental grace we receive in confession and in the Holy Eucharist, grace acts as an atomic bomb to that wall of sin. We begin anew every time we sacramentally address our failures to God. But if we continue to leave those acts unchecked, eventually they will take over us entirely until we're unrecognizable to ourselves, to our family, to our friends, and eventually until we're unrecognizable to God. And of these, the gospel tells us they will arrive at the kingdom and call out, Lord, Lord, but the Lord will say to them, I do not know you. The hope promised to us this morning is that no one, no one is so far gone that they can't start anew with God. His ways are not our ways. Now, in the world, if we make enough mistakes, you may lose your friends, you may lose your job, you may even lose your family. But with God, there's never a line that is too far that he isn't willing to cross to get us back to himself. It isn't God who cuts us off. It's we who will cut ourselves off from God. We have to take stock of ourselves and realize when we need the Lord's help to overcome our attachments to sin before our hearts are so emboldened against good that we're lost forever. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.